New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, I'm going to have an open-ended conversation with Carl Abrahamson. He is a writer of both fiction and nonfiction. He calls himself a magico-anthropologist. He is a filmmaker and a photographer and a magician <laughs> and a musician. And uh, he is also the author of Oculture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward a book about the relationship between culture and the occult. And that will be the main focus of our conversation today. We did a previous interview based on his recent documentary uh, titled Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Den, and we looked at the Church of Satan. He's also the publisher of the annual anthology of O-Culture called The Fenris Wolf. He has um, published a, a series of essays, lectures, and interviews called Resonances. Uh, another one of his films is called Cinemagician, Conversations with Kenneth Anger. Another film is titled Lunacy, which is a film praising lunar forces and witches from all times and spaces. Yet another of his films is called Poems are living things. Once again, this is an internet interview, and I'll switch over now to the internet video. Welcome, Carl. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you very much. It's great to be here again. In uh, your book uh, titled O-Culture, you refer to the hidden forces that drive culture forward. And by that, I presume you're referring to what we conventionally call the occult. Uh, is, uh, maybe you could amplify that a little bit. Let's start there. Although you could say that um, it's about occultism in a way, but not everybody of, of these people I've written about have been involved or enmeshed in the occult in the sense of arcane rituals or ritual magic, uh, but they have worked with forces that have not been accepted by the mainstream. That's really the bottom line in, in my own definition in a way. So someone who works outside or underneath the, the surface, like underground, literally. So... Um, how things uh, are being changed in culture, in greater culture, you could look at that from many different perspectives or with different goggles. It could be sociological, it could be uh, anthropological, it could be political in many ways. But when you start scratching the surface, you find that many of the key people who really instigated change have had some kind of interest that goes beyond <laughs> the, the merely causal, so to speak. And and the, the more they um, uh, praise or value their own uh, psychological process consciously and their own working with their mind, basically – then you see that um, they come up with things, ideas, notions, um, epiphanies in ways that are not 
uh, accepted at their particular point in time and space. So I think that's one uh, red thread that I saw there. But then, of course, most of these people that I write about in the book, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, magicians like Crowley and LaVey and, uh, or authors like uh, Paul Bowles and other and Rudolf Steiner, who was a bit of, uh, he had his feet in, in, in many worlds in a way. They are all... Um, aware of the fact they, they take care of a legacy somehow a literary or an esoteric but they reshape it and that's the real magic of these people they reshape it they synthesize things and express it anew in their own language and that's exactly if you go into this discussion of um, you know, memes and memetics and things that affect our culture today uh, online in our online culture. It's like uh, some things take on a life. So I guess what unites all of these people who I claim have, have affected this change in culture uh, is their uh, valuing, their own validation of their own individual and I, you know, I dare to say it, intuitive process. That's very important. Let me push a little bit further because while you were speaking, the first thing that came to mind was Sir Isaac Newton, who, who valued his work in alchemy more than his work in physics. And, and yet his work in physics sort of set the scientific mechanistic trend of uh, Western culture. Many would say, looking back on it today, kind of in a negative direction. So uh, what I want to ask you is what, what do you think it means to say moves culture forward as opposed to backward? I think that um, there is a, a kind of dilemma also when, when you mention Newton, for instance, and this kind of where, where, where uh, an intuition becomes a two-edged sword. Uh, he, of course, he was stuck in his time, but we can evaluate him and evaluate ourselves in similar dilemmas. It's like we come up with one thing and it's, you know, good or beneficial for us or for a little group of people, but it could also be very bad for other people at the same time. So whatever we come up with when it comes to things that have uh, the possible uh, possible connection with uh, a greater group of people or a society or, again, a culture, uh, then you know, we have um, cold-hearted materialist utilitarianism on one side, which is, of course, a, um, a remnant or a heritage from a very rationalistic, uh, materialistic, uh, 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 well, heritage. And then on the other hand, uh, you have this thing which, I mean, I guess jokingly or endearingly has been called New Age. I don't even know what that means anymore because it's simply so many things stuffed under, I guess, an irrational umbrella. That's the thing, you know, you have this hyper-rational world in which, you know, uh, a religious belief in statistics, you know, really rules our world in many ways. But on the other hand, we have this hyper-irrationalistic uh, mind frame. And I think, you know, of course, everybody, all the wisdoms of the world say that, you know, um, Perhaps they, they, uh, the two shall never meet, but we should at least attempt to meet in the middle to see what common ground there is and to create like a, a healthier, more wise uh, merger, a synthesis. And I think that's what makes today so interesting because all of these things are out in the open. 
Uh, it's not like the worlds are completely esoteric. And that's another thing, like, you know, using the term occult. Things were occult. Radical ideas were occult for a reason. They were there, you know, it's a question of protection, protection from other power structures, uh, protection from, you know, leaking and disseminating uh, wisdom to people who couldn't understand it. There are many aspects to that. Uh, but now, we all know that, you know, any kind of rare occult manuscript, we can just like Google and we'll find it. And it's not no longer a quest. It's more like an anti-quest in a way. And of course, to find it on the internet doesn't mean that you can, uh, you know, integrate it and make yourself a more wise person. On the contrary. Uh, but what I'm uh, after here is that... Uh, the scientific tradition has been predominant, but now suddenly, and I guess through, in a way, these occult tendencies and occult thinkers have taken more and more place in the mainstream. And that has actually happened mostly via culture. There we have to ask, you know, what is this really all about? I would say that the scientific rational mind frame is a remnant. It's a pretty clear, and I would call it religious. It's a religious remnant, not of uh, monotheism, but simply belief in, in uh, the law of probability. On the other hand, I think this, uh, let's call it then the New Age umbrella, uh, because it contains so many different things. There, I think these people or this egregore or cluster is confronting something that is very important today, and that's our survival instinct. That has you know, usually been the role of the artist or the creative person, to filter uh, unconscious, subconscious signals about, you know, what kind of state is the world in, and then express that in their own particular creative way to affect people, not necessarily rationally, not necessarily with information, but with emotion that in turn can make them realize, whoa, this, you know, now I understand the statistics and this sort of... Um, uh, potential disaster that's going on because most people will not sit down with with the scientific tracts and look at the statistics but they can be moved you used a word i want to make sure i understood it did i hear you say egregore yeah and and then you said if i recall correctly a, a cluster an egregore or a cluster let's amplify on that Simply when one or more, you know, two or more things unite, you have a cluster. And when that contains uh, something that transcends the mere numeric volume and integrates philosophy, integrates uh, communal view, then you could say that it becomes like an egregore, a new kind of core that has the power by volume to affect things further. Uh, the way I first heard about that word was... Is, Definitely within uh, magical communities, you talked about the magical egregore, and uh, but that for me, it's equally usable, uh, applicable in uh, again in greater culture. An egregore uh, is united not by unity of traditional things like uh, race or ethnicity or political views. It's something more pragmatic, and there could be an egregore of um, communal goals, for instance. I guess you could say that. Uh, civil rights, civil liberties. Uh, that's one kind of egregore where people from many different uh, directions come and unite and create uh, a cluster by number, but also an egregore of force. 
So it's basically like a, a new kind of core that contains the power to change things because it has, uh, I guess, you know, uh, a spirit in a way. Now, I bring it up because uh, one of my other guests, uh, one of our most popular guests, you may not be familiar with, or you may be Jason Reza Giorgiani, philosopher. Um, he is uh, developing a uh, I'm going to call it a new theology. He calls it Prometheism. And he suggests that, that Prometheus, the, the Greek Titan who stole the fire of, from the gods and gave it to humanity is an egregore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, uh, I would probably say that what was actually constituting the egregore is when people realize the force of Prometheus and, and that, uh, it's like we talked about last time about this uh, potent symbol of Satan. Of course, there are many similarities with uh, between Prometheus and, and Lucifer specifically in the sense that you, you um, bring something to humans that they're not supposed to have, whether it's the fire from Mount Olympus or whether it's uh, like free will and the, the right to pleasure and sort of this uh, radical Epicureanism in a way. So I can certainly see, see what he means by that. And I think... Uh, Prometheus is uh, uh, perhaps a more usable term in a way today than than uh, Satan is, because Satan will always be tainted by by the monotheistic garb. You can't uh, you can't escape that because it stems from this dualistic thinking. Uh, Prometheus and the, sort of the Greek pantheon and and of course philosophy of antiquity is. Uh, in many ways, much more useful in the sense that it's not tainted with value. It's something that is a found the foundation of Western civilization. Uh, we, you know, find the phil philosophers and we find, you know, art and drama and literature with such a, you know, vastly wealthy and rich uh, culture. Uh, so, um, it's not surprising. I mean, there are many people still using, in terms of finding good metaphors, good analogies, they still stick with the Greek pantheon. And I can see why. Absolutely. Well, I'm under the impression from what little I know, really, that um, the idea of the egregore, to me, it's sort of like uh, what the Tibetans call the tulpa, uh, a thought form generated by humans, uh, maybe, as you say, an aggregation of humans. It takes on a life of its own. It becomes uh, uh, like like a ghost, a specter, an independent entity uh, that that interacts with human culture in some form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I totally ascribe to that. And history is interesting because we can see, even though there have, of course, been secret agents and stuff like that, uh, we can see, though, history as... Um, what do you call it, a board game. And you can analyze the game, how it was played in certain uh, times. Um, today, it's slightly more complicated because so much is... Um, it's co it's covert in the open and ma mainly because of the internet and and uh, Anton Lavey had some some interesting things to say about that he talked very much about uh, the invisible war and and you know today that has much more value than when he came up with it because if you see for instance uh, that we are no longer fighting an information war but it's more like an, a disinformation war it's no longer a war of signal it's a war of noise and that of course is a strategy you know people don't want to shout the loudest hey listen to me listen to my arguments because i'm right they instead uh, 
uh, use other uh, means on the internet by you know social media and instead of saying what you believe in you focus on the people who do not believe like you and sort of smear them smear campaigning instead and i think uh, of course that's a shame <laughs> it's like moral outrage uh, but you can't escape it it is just the way it is history has never been static the, you know the game on this game board changes all the time and that's what makes it so fascinating however i think it will be very very difficult for the people uh, historians of the future because you know you always need data you always need data to look through and analyze and up until recently there you know there were newspapers and archives and books and uh, to a certain degree um, you know, uh, magnetic electronic media. But today, you know, what hap- What happens if there's a solar flare and, you know, all the <laughs> internet is gone and all the hard drives is gone? It's just like, uh, it's not back to square one, but we're going to be moved back like a hundred years in time and have to rethink things. It's a fascinating thing. And I'm sure it will happen uh, at some point. You know, when I think of culture moving forward, because I'm a parapsychologist, I like to think that uh, what we're engaged in is a kind of fusion of uh, the scientific method with what people called uh, at one time the rising tide of superstition or the irrational, trying to find uh, the golden thread of truth and in all of this new age uh, um, one of my friends calls it newage to rhyme with sewage. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it strikes me that if, if culture is to move forward, it's kind of like the evolution of the human being and to, to own what, uh, people, uh, at, you know, the vanguard of people, highly gifted clairvoyants and psychics come to own that more. And that, that's the birthright I tend to think of all people ultimately, uh, although it's only recognized right now by, I don't know, maybe two or three percent of the culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think uh, in our particular uh, cultural sphere, I think it has to do a lot with the, the uh you know, very negative imperialism of monotheism, you know, where where people who have real abilities to heal, for instance, real abilities to see, you know, natural shamans in a way, uh, where they are suddenly just uh, ridiculed from the time that they're children. Uh, of course, they will go into hiding. They will become occult then, which can, of course, lead to more ostracizing maneuvers from the outside or or like a self-isolation in a way. So it has been a very bad culture for um, teaching people that they have potential. They have much more potential than they um, have been brought up to believe. So it's almost like uh, uh, someone, it's a culture where you put the lid on the uh, pot when it starts boiling but that's actually when it should be just allowed to boil and and cook some new dishes and see what's happening but the culture as such has always been you know now psychology is accepted you know uh, it, that wasn't the case from the beginning 100 years ago or, or slightly more uh, and what we as a joint term could call parapsychology is not really accepted. Uh, although, I mean, I'm sure things are opening up too. It's a vast field, of course, but uh, some uh, areas I think uh, will will be looked into in a serious, you know, scientific way. Uh, I think telepathy and this, these different kinds of uh, 
other kinds of uh, interhuman communications, for instance. Um, and you only have to go to uh, uh, the communication of uh, other, you know, of plants, for instance, how one society or gl- group or, again, cluster of uh, fern or, or these things that really grow together in a way, how they can communicate via their roots like if one is uprooted the other ones will know it uh, things like that so i think um, it's not a matter of um, anymore it's not no longer uh, a matter of just oppose uh, progress for for the sake of it i mean for religious reasons i think scientists uh, today are generally more open-minded and i would suspect that it has to do with a general kind of openness that has to do with culture, uh, you know, influencing these things. And I mean, I was trying to find an example. Um, We can't relate to it, but there was a film recently about, I think it was called uh, The Current War. It was about Edison and Tesla and uh, Westinghouse, you know, them working together and just deciding arbitrarily whether to have ACDC or just AC, you know, these things that uh, for us, it's like, it's so normal. But when you think of it, it's really kind of complex and very powerful energies at work. And there were these three guys you know, competing like little alpha males in the sandbox in a way of, of how to do this. And of course, they were all geniuses in their own ways uh there was three singular people with a vision that changed really changed our lives in a similar ways that you know the people at the american universities who came up with this interconnectivity ideas that became the internet and they had all you know tried lsd and um, these things happen and it happens when the time is right the same thing why uh, why psychology popped up and actually did become quite accepted in a fairly short um, amount of time. And I think that's going to keep happening. I can see definitely, definitely a more uh, liberal in a way, a more tolerant, a more open-minded uh, attitude in the scientific uh, communities because you can criticize them for historically having looked to grants, having looked to patents, having looked to things that have to do with uh, pecuniary matters. Uh, But at the same time, society at large, the culture at large, has changed to now totally embody a deep rooted anxiety about you know what the hell is going on? (laughs) You know, is this a good thing? Is this a good trajectory? No, it's not. So Better start, you know, turning the the tanker and steer it in a different direction. With regard to psychology, it seems to me that that the really the most influential voice in psychology over the last century has probably been that of Freud. And Freud, especially at the cultural level, less amongst academic uh, psychologists, but what Freud introduced was the idea of the unconscious. And and the Freudian unconscious is filled with things that we don't want to know about ourselves, that we have dark motives that we hide from ourselves because they're not culturally acceptable. And uh, it seems to me, as long as we're hiding from ourselves, it, it's very difficult for clairvoyance. 
to be around. I, I once had an opportunity to ask Arthur C. Clarke, the great science fiction writer who, who spoke at Berkeley when I was a student and he had been making some very negative hostile comments about Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic. So I asked him, I said, Mr. Clark, do you believe in ESP? Because his novels are full of it. And, uh, he said to me, I thought this was very revealing. He said, no, I do not believe in ESP because I don't want anybody to read my mind. <laughs> Well, I think that's a, it's it's a, at least probably a ser uh, you know an honest answer uh, because who who would want that? But at the same time, it could also again this this two edged sword thing because if you you know could look into someone's mind, you could also have a deeper kind of communication that is not based on dishonesty. Those communications would need to be honest in a way because you can't really formulate your own inner emotions and thoughts as being, um, you know, strategically uh, deviant from from a real uh, communication. Uh, but I just wanted to say also with you mentioned Clark and that is very interesting because one very clear, uh, discernible way that uh, culture affected um, or or culture affected the large culture that's simply through through uh, science fiction in a way you know small you know very bright science fiction writers radical uh, they were you know first in the pulp magazines they were not regarded as literature they were just entertainment for boys and girls and um, but many of these things only a couple of decades later it was an actual reality and you know flying to the moon who could have foreseen that and most of those people uh, who were instrumental in, in engineering that uh, had been uh, reading these sort of pulp magazines. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so it's kind of uh, funny, it's not the right word. It's, it's interesting to see how this kind of lowbrow culture that has to do with, you know, you growing up, uh, how seminal those things can be. I, I uh, recently uh, read um, something by uh, Joseph Campbell, a person I really admire, and, and he said that uh, uh, the thing that created timelessness for you when you grew up, that's where your own myth begins, meaning that what could set you sort of out of the boundaries of time and space and sort of enchant you as a, as a child, that's where your myth begins. And I think that's that's the power of, of um, culture also. You, you, you really affect kids and kids' minds more with um, entertainment in a way uh, or fiction rather than with, you know, mechanical uh, schooling. I know when I was uh, a young boy, I, I read comic books like most young children do. I read Superman was my hero. And <laughs> uh, though they become very inspirational. And I did have an opportunity to uh, converse with Jeffrey Kripal, a professor of religious studies, who, who noted that many of the great comic book uh, writers uh, were deeply interested in the Occult. Oh, I, I bet. Absolutely. And, you know, a Superman is also an interesting example to, to again, tie it in with, with Anton LaVey. Um, he said that, you know, because, you know, 
people called LaVey, like, you know, pop Nietzsche. It was Nietzsche for, for an American audience in a way. And yeah, yeah, you could, you know, you could see that. Uh, and any kind of will, philosophy of will, is, it comes from Schopenhauer, but it's filtered via Nietzsche. But LaVey said, finally, because he was also very, very enamored with American pop culture. He grew up in the 30s and 40s, the, the sort of the golden age of American comics. Um, and he said that, you know, very, very truly. It's like without Nietzsche, there would be no Superman. And Superman was so quintessentially important for American kids and for American culture. Now, speaking of Superman, I do recall uh, uh, many followers of Rudolf Steiner, about whom you've written, uh, referred to him as the embodiment of uh, the Nietzschean Übermensch, the uh, idea that uh, Steiner was so accomplished as a sculptor, as an architect, as a, a founder of an educational institution, as a founder of uh, uh, schools of medicine and biology. Uh, uh, not to mention, of course, philosophy. Uh, they, they thought of him as, as as the living embodiment of what Nietzsche had been uh, writing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting, and of course, Steiner is a very very interesting character. In the book, in the Occulture book, I have a chapter sort of comparing Alistair Crowley with Rudolf Steiner because there are many similarities. You know, they both uh, concocted their own syntheses based on previous thing. Crowley had the Golden Dawn, uh, Steiner had Theosophy, uh, and yet they made something new and made movements out of it. And it's so there are many similarities, but. To stay with a Nietzschean uh, egregore in a way, <laughs> uh, it's so funny because Steiner was such, it's like 100% Apollonian and Crowley was like 100% Dionysian. So they're almost like, um, I would not say twins, I wouldn't go that far, but they are very interesting as truly opposing poles, yet they carry the same trajectory albeit in different ways. But it, the similarities are striking, but as types, they are so completely uh, opposed, I would say. Well, it's interesting because uh, Steiner has left behind a very organized uh, uh, group of people who continue on in, in his teachings and, and so on. Crowley ha has left behind, I would say, a very disorganized following for the most part. Many diverse groups of pagans and occultists uh, look up to Crowley in, in different ways, but they don't seem to embody any of the uh, discipline and institutional culture that one finds amongst anthroposophists. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's absolutely true. And I mean, I, I uh, early on, uh, like from my teens and on up until fairly recently, I was a big, I uh, wouldn't say Crowley fan, but I was an actual, you know, student and, and engaged in the philosophy and I really ascribed to most of the things. And I found his main, his best quality was this uh, capacity for synthesis, like taking, integrating things from the East and also taking the, some good parts from the Western tradition, but mainly it's the philosophy philosophy of, of uh, Thelema, of will. But then again, you know, you could, there's really nothing that these sort of uh, Anglo-Saxon occultists have, have uh, formulated that, uh, that wasn't surpassed earlier on by, by Germans. You know, you could go to, of course, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and, and Goethe and all these, uh, these um, superior minds, if I may say so. And I think also uh, Crowley has many uh, entries of attraction for, for young people is this 
the 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 archetype of the rebel is this uh, he did everything he was a bad boy and yet he was very suave and aristocratic uh, but also his life was pretty much a mess you know he was had a voluminous output but there was no uh, order and then you can make virtue out of necessity and say that well that's just how he wanted to live his life i don't think so i think we, he would have preferred a much more you know um um, sophisticated lifestyle without <laughs> pecuniary problems, I have to say. But there, there are other levels t- to this too. I think that uh, for me, one of the turnoffs that actually made me lose interest in Crowley was, uh, you know, he was a child of his time, and there was this burgeoning of very um, great expanses and developments in in the natural sciences, for instance. And at the same time. Uh, he came from a so so that's one thing the empirical method it was big in the zeitgeist on the other hand he came from a very strictly you know christian uh, conservative background so of course he rebelled and took i'm the great beast 666 whatever uh, but at the same time he had that in his blood it wasn't just the rebellion he had that you know uh, old testament mind frame and of course what does he do when he gets you know, so turned on that he writes his his uh, epiphanic text. Well, he calls himself a prophet, and that those things are for me two no nos. And he summarized it well in something that is now like a decree, something that is looked upon with with admiration. He said that you know that the method of science, the aim of religion, inherently meaning that he's the prophet of that religion. And for me, that's that's a double no no. Uh, the empirical method is something that dates back to, to I don't know, early the early 19th century, and it should have been left there. And and as for the religion, you know, the aim of religion, hmm, I don't know. It's not a good association. Uh, religion is mostly associated with oppression, imperialism, uh, monotheism, and you know, it doesn't really help if you just adopt an Egyptian pantheon and think that people will swallow that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Well, if you reject the method of science and the aim of religion, what are you left with? You're left with an um, unprejudiced, open mind with a highly skilled and developed intuition, uh, but mainly a tolerance, because since you don't have those strict limits and boundaries that you set upon yourself by adhering rigidly to a method, for instance. Because again, empiricism, what is it? It's the religious adherence to statistics. Because if you make 100 successful uh, attempts in a laboratory, then you assume, well, this we did 100. So thereby, we are harnessing the truth based on statistics. But what if the 101st experiment topsy-turvies everything? Is that then just an anomaly or is it a a wrong uh, application of the method? No, it's the same. So you can, from a strictly utilitarian perspective, of course you can do that, like clinical laboratory work in developing medicines and stuff like that. It's beautiful stuff. But in terms, you know, to adhere to a materialistic empirical regime is to negate your own potential. It's to negate your own belief in the fact that your intuition has value. Because what if your intuition says, I'll go against the grain here, even though that group is successful and established, uh, they claim one thing that I feel. My intuition tells me this is completely wrong. 
And you could argue also that any kind of, you know, a communal movement, do they claim to have the truth or the falsehood? Of course, they always claim to have the truth. Let's, let's stay in Nazi Germany. You know, the main part of the people, uh, not just the ruling elite, but many people subscribe to the theories. And then ergo, that would imply that there is some kind of, you know, empirical <laughs> truth in what they're saying, simply because of the, the number, you know. So in that sense, you know, sometimes democracy is not the best way to, to run a, a country, but it's probably the best one we have. Uh, but what I'm saying is that uh, at least as a Someone who's on a quest, you could call it spiritual or magical, whatever, uh, you have to be true first and foremost to yourself. And if someone says something that you're supposed to believe in and you don't believe in it, then of course you should stick with your own uh, regimen, your own attitude, your own results. Um, and if you look at, I would say, interestingly enough, the, the history of science, many of the epiphanies that have you know, created pivotal changes have come from deeply irrational, deeply uh, unempirical methods that have then gone on to be verified in a way. Um, but I usually say to not to mock, but to provoke uh, empiricists, you know, what's the foundation of empiricism? And they will most often answer, well, it's our method. But actually, the foundation of, of uh, empiricism is, and this is what they don't like to hear, it's speculation. Because you cannot even postulate a theory if you don't have several speculations that can be gelled into something that can be taken into um, an experimental environment. So um, my experience is that they they don't want to integrate that <laughs> that question or saying that the foundation of empiricism is speculation pure and simple i argue that it is i want to shift gears a little bit with you earlier you talked about the distinction between the anglo-saxon world and the germanic culture. And uh, I, you are in Stockholm right now. I'm in Albuquerque. I'm totally immersed in Anglo-Saxon culture, but you are in a world where uh, you're really close to both of them. You're obviously very fluent in English, but I, I'm going to assume maybe wrongly that you, your first language is probably Swedish. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. You have more of a perspective on the Anglo-Saxon world uh, from the outside than I have. I've always been on the inside. Yes, absolutely. But then, then again, you know, you, you have this thing uh, which you you can, you know, uh, it's not a matter of accepting it or not. It's just there. You have a huge influx uh, here as well as in in uh, the rest of the world, actually, of of American cultural uh, imperialism. And I remember, I mean, it affected me greatly in very good ways. I mean, that's why I basically, you know, love a lot of American culture. Maybe you know, pop culture and, and sort of B movies and sort of the slightly discarded things uh, but that's what I grew up with uh, because the fact that uh, in, on Swedish TV when I grew up there were only two channels and uh, anything that was broadcast was usually stuff from, from England, from the UK but also a lot of American films of course and they were not dubbed they were with subtitles. So S Swedish kids learned English really quickly and then from age 9 or 10 in school so that's one part of it but the other part is, of course, the power of American uh, cultural imperialism. With movies, with music, uh, we are 
uh, immersed in it whether we want it or not. So I think that's never going to go away and it may be irrevocable. <laughs> I'm not saying that it has to be revoked. I don't think it's possible. But what we can see now with the internet is that it, it's even uh, more predominant in a way because kids watch YouTube and they watch you know, uh, American reality shows and it's just... Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of both love and hate that expression, reality shows, because it's a show of fiction, but it's supposed to be about reality, which, of course, is not everybody's reality. It's, it's just a, a certain number of perhaps not so intelligent people. Um, but um, concerning the, the Germanic, you know, if you uh, think back as a Swedish person, for instance, where our culture you know what? What are the roots? What are the sources? And there's a lot of influx. Like in our language, for instance, we have do have a lot of English words, but we also have, of course, it's a Germanic language, so the structure is there. But we also have a lot of uh, uh, words from the French in Swedish that have become sort of Swedified. Uh, so I think culturally, it's it's a mix, and I think also the the current. Um, you know, the, we have a monarchy and we have a king, but it's not really stemming from a Swedish bloodline. It was like an, a, a political thing that happened in, in the early uh, 19th century where uh, Napoleon basically said, you, hey, you, you go and be king over Sweden. And that's what happened. And th that family is still uh, doing and they're doing a pretty good job. So <laughs> I'm not complaining. But it's interesting to see that it's not ancient history. Our world in Sweden is being uh, has been shaped by very uh, strong forces in history, and we have always retained a very diplomatic approach. Like officially, we're neutral, for instance, in terms of uh, international politics. We have not been in a war for over 200 years. Uh, things like that is kind of unheard of, but it gives us a kind of a, a character trait where we are both alone but we're also part of everything like good diplomats in a way we can uh, go into many different environments and and converse and um, maybe be sly maybe be strategic maybe stay out of trouble but it's based on the fact that there has always been uh, in uh, what do you call it uh, input mainly from the european main hubs germany france and england and those have defined our culture. And then I would say during the 20th century, it was uh, this uh, wave, this tsunami coming from, from America and sort of engulfing all of it. One of the um, areas of interest of our viewers is the whole question of aliens from outer space. And uh, uh, amongst the various aliens people talk about are the, uh, they call them the mantids, like giant insects. There are the greys. And then there are the Nordics. So the Nordics are tall with blue eyes and blonde hair. And they are often described as sort of the most elevated uh, of the alien uh, beings. Uh, I think of them as, as, as sort of egregores. But because they're called Nordics, obviously, there seems to be some connection there with uh, you and Sweden and the Nordic countries. Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. There were uh, even um, um, some Swedish scientists like in the, let's see, 17th centuries, seventh century, who claimed that, um, you know, um, Atlantis was basically uh, situated in Sweden and, and all of these um, 
you know, uh, meteor lakes that we have that, you know, some something came down into that lake in the middle of Sweden. So, but this is just like speculation and, you know, bordering on uh, not even mythology, but bordering on, on uh, certain person's fantasies. Uh, you could also see it very clearly uh, when the... Uh, uh, Ariosophists uh, came to cultural power first in in Austria and then Germany, and how that seeped into politics and became a whole thing. This yearning for for uh, the Nordic in a way, and it's so funny too because it does exist in in still exists in in real life. And I'm not talking specifically about us being aliens, but I'm talking, for instance, about. Uh, Germans have this incredibly romantic view of Sweden. Sweden in particular, I would say, more so than Denmark and, and uh, Norway. And I don't know why. It's a big thing for Germans to have a Swedish summer house. You know, Scandinavians are really big on their summer houses and they're all kind of, uh, you know, homogenous. They're painted in red with, you know, white windows. And it's just very, very cute cute is a good word and you know for a long time um, it, and it's not a politicized thing uh, but they've always had this kind of idealized notion idealized view of sweden and i think that was very clear during uh, during the nazi era too um for for mostly for bad of course but who knows you know uh, we were never invaded and i'm sure there were many you know political um, strategies going on and um, maybe some shady deals i don't know but i mean for instance norway was invaded denmark was invaded but sweden wasn't so either very skillful diplom diplomacy or simply a kind of respect for for us that we couldn't explain at the time certainly and still can't um so I I uh, I'm not so sure about the the Nordic aliens. Sometimes I feel alienated, but that's a completely different thing. Uh, on on that topic, though, uh, it's interesting to see, and that itself is a study why so many of the alien uh, cultures. You know, or I would say maybe even subcultures, people adhere almost like in fiction, you know, to a certain type, like you say, like their hominids, homini, uh, what do you call hominoids, or their their Nordics, or their different kinds of um, what did you call them, arachnid, something that uh, mantids, and there's the reptilians, yeah. and <laughs> right, exactly. But the thing is to connect things with with what's going on today also you know there there is alien invasion going on all the time but it's not in that kind of life form this bacteria coming into our our atmosphere and this virus is coming in for in into our atmosphere from space and how they take on new forms and how they mutate that could actually be something that has to do with um you know, uh, what's going on today with pandemics and stuff, because you can try to isolate and say that, yeah, it was this, you know, fish market or animal market in Wuhan in China, and they did this. But how the hell can they do that? How they can they isolate like billions of people down this point in time and space? It's, it's uh, I don't know. But then again, uh, how can you trace uh, the origins of viruses in general? Uh, you know, it, it's an established fact that things seep into our atmosphere. That's not science fiction. It's not a conspiracy theory. That's typically empirical knowledge. So in that sense, yeah, we are being invaded by aliens, but they're not really uh, anthropomorphic. 
Now, I've heard the same thing being said about psychedelic mushroom spores, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I love that. And let's, let's just accept that as a theory for now. Uh, but I love that because that's exactly, you know, why would someone want to come here, for instance? Well, it could be to, like, if from our human mind frame, it would be to rob us, rob us of our riches, you know, to exploit the planet and then leave again. But it could also be from a slightly more, you know, um, altruistic point of view, maybe to help us and to guide us. And I mean, that's how ancient religious cultures have left behind documentation too of, you know, visitations and, and um, having been given technologies and stuff like that. But, you know, I personally love the idea, the fact that spores or fungi, uh, and I'm not talking about this from, from a Lovecraftian perspective, I'm talking more of it from uh, psychedelicists being a, a mind opener in the sense, hey people, it's time to wake up and see things in a more holistic light, because if you sort of destroy this hab your habitat, this planet, it will disturb a balance on a cosmic scale also. We are so narrow-minded. We think, you know, from an anthropocentric, not even a, a um, what do you call it, Earth-centric, it's only anthropocentric, you know, uh, whereas, of course, if something really bad happens and sort of we lose... Um, you know, uh, ecological balance and there's a new ice age. And of course that affects the rest of at least our solar system. And there may be, or there may be not, you know, forces that uh, like that or don't like that, I mean, and, and say that, hey, people wake up. So what do we do? Well, since we can't speak any of the earth languages and if we show up in our spacecraft, they would just kill us. Let's give them some psychedelic spores <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wonderful note to end on, Carl. I love this conversation because I have the feeling that uh, we could keep going for a long time. We could talk about practically anything and you will have Absolutely. interesting things to say. So um, I want to thank you for being with me. This has been a delight and uh, I look forward to future conversations with you. Yeah, me too, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been great. And we'll just um, keep the flame burning, as Prometheus would say. Beautiful. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.